Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, you could turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, we continue to study this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Uh, by way of reminder, Paul began his letter by talking about comfort and affliction, that our God is the God of all comfort, reminding us that He is sovereign over any affliction that we may come across or may come into our lives, that He is working good in it, that it is never in vain, but always serves a purpose at least, if nothing else, to draw us nearer to Him in dependence and that we might help others in their own time of suffering and affliction. And then we've seen Paul over the last several weeks defend himself against some accusations that seem to have been made because of his change in plans that he had apparently said he would come to Corinth before going to Macedonia. Instead, he sent them a letter We've been talking about why that was, and uh, having heard now, it seems, from Titus, a response to that letter. He's in Macedonia, he's writing this letter, and he is headed their way. But some seem to have accused him of being not trustworthy, and his message not trustworthy, his authority not trustworthy in their lives. And so he's been defending uh, himself and telling them why it is that he didn't come. We saw last week the heart of a Christian leader, uh, one who uh, is honest and who speaks the truth in love to his people, uh, who is seeking the best for them, even better than for himself. And today we see Paul talk about uh, instructions for what to do in the situation that was being addressed and all that back and forth. And this this text will actually give us the best hint we have, I think, toward what was going on that made Paul send that letter of tears instead of going immediately to visit the church at Corinth. And we'll see that in a minute. But he's writing here to tell them to lift a censure, a church, a church discipline upon a man. And so as I read these verses for us, I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Uh, think about what Paul tells us about the purpose of discipline in the church and what our heart must be both as those who might receive it and those who are giving it out to others. And so let's read these verses together. Second Corinthians chapter two, verses five through 11. Would you please stand with me if you're able out of love and respect for God's word as I read it for us. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Beloved, this is God's word. What do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us as we consider God's word together. Father in heaven, we praise you again for the glory of who you are, for the wonder of your grace to us in Christ Jesus. You are so good, so kind, so loving. Lord, we praise you that we can call you Father and that you love us, that you provide for us, that you protect us, but also when necessary, you correct us. 
and you discipline us and you bring us into line with your good purposes for our lives. Uh, We trust that you use your church often to do this. And so as we think about that process this morning, as you have spoken to us about it in your word, soften our hearts to understand why we must be submissive to the discipline and correction of the church, why we must be faithful to practice it as a church for your glory, for the good of your people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. As I've already said, we are thinking about uh, church discipline today. Uh, Here, Paul is uh, exhorting the Corinthians to lift uh, discipline from a man, a censure that has been given to a man. But as we think about church discipline, one of the things we have to think about is is why. And in another letter, uh, his letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's it's quite a a statement. Paul says, this is the will of God. Sometimes that's a question we ask about our lives, isn't it? What is God's will for my life? What does God have for my life? What does God want for my life? And and Paul gives us in there in 1 Thessalonians 4, the simplest answer to that question. He wants us to be holy. And everything else, he'll work out as far as what kind of job should I have and how many kids should I have and whatever those questions might be. We seek to follow his principles. But at the very core, God's will for our lives is sanctification, that we would be holy, as he goes on there to say, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Why did Jesus Christ die for you? Of course, he died to have your sins forgiven, that you might have eternal life in his name, that you might live forever in heaven. These things are true, but that's only half of the story. Jesus Christ died so that you could be holy, so that you can live the way that God has created you to live, to live according to his purposes. He has died to, to deliver you from the eternal wrath of God, but he's died for something so much better that we could be who he's made us to be so that we could be holy and walk in his ways and we will do that forever in heaven, but even now upon the earth because in his perfect wisdom he has decided that he wouldn't make us perfect the moment we believe, but instead would have us go through a process of growing in holiness. The truth of the matter is that we can be holy. So another question we might ask is, what is the purpose of the church? Uh, Why does the church of Christ exist? Our Westminster Confession of Faith says that we exist to gather and perfect the saints. That we would be used to gather in all of God's elect. That we would be calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcoming in the lost to hear the hope of Jesus Christ, but also, as he said in Matthew 28, that we would teach them to obey everything that Christ has said. That, that idea of perfecting, you know, don't let that old school language confuse you. We're not saying we're going to be perfect in this life, but that we will grow 
in holiness together, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. We, we, have, we have the church so we can grow into maturity in Christ Jesus together. This is why we exist. Christ died so that we could be holy, and the church is one of his primary instruments of growing that holiness in our lives. And discipline is an important component of how the church helps the elect grow to maturity, grow to holiness. And so one thing we should do, and we're going to get to 2 Corinthians 2, I promise. But one thing we should think about is what does that word discipline mean? If I'm going to throw it around so many times in this sermon, what am I talking about when I talk about discipline? Well, it comes from a Latin word that means instruction or learning. Uh, we hear our English word disciple in it, don't we? A disciple is one who, who follows another person for the purpose of learning and instruction. So the disciples of Jesus were, were following him. We follow him as disciples now so that we might learn uh, his ways, the grace of the gospel and what he would have for our life. And so the first component of discipline is instruction. And sometimes when we think, talk about discipline in the church, we think about church discipline, we immediately go to rebuke and church trials and that kind of thing. But the first component of discipline is instruction. It is, it is learning. And so the, the first way that the church disciples, the first way that the church brings discipline into the life of the people is by teaching the people. By proclaiming the word of God, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and in all of the studies that we have, and on our Wednesday night prayer meeting that we instruct the church, right, so that we can be a disciplined body. And that kind of leads to the second component of discipline, which is formation. When I say to you, if I say to you, he's a disciplined person, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? You think he's got very good structure and order in his life. He's got goals and he's, 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 got, uh, he's, he's got good habits that will help him get to those goals, right? When, when I'm watching the Rangers play baseball in the World Series and they say, this guy's a very disciplined hitter. That means he's practiced a lot and he, he lays off of bad pitches because he's practiced a lot, and that's what one part of discipline that the church does as well is that we, we help uh, form uh, other people uh, in habits and rhythms that lead to holiness, right? One day in seven is for worship and fo focusing upon the Lord. Encourage you to be in a habit of reading your Bible day in and day out and spending time in prayer day in and day out and, and spending time with the people of God on a regular basis so that we can encourage each other. That's another element of what discipline means that, that we that we help one another along but of course there is that third component of discipline which is correction the rebuke and the punishment when someone is wrong when we are in sin we are a sinful people our sin is not immediately removed from us we have a lifelong process of dying to sin and living to God in righteousness and the church must be about the business of calling out sin amongst ourselves 
uh, of giving rebuke for sin and correction and when appropriate, even punishment. We don't like that word because we use the word discipline, but you understand my quandary when I try to say discipline is discipline, right? So punishment is a word for it, but it has a good purpose, which is always correction, repentance in our spiritual language, uh, returning to the Lord. And of course, that idea permeates scripture, doesn't it? Right? The Lord's people turn away and the Lord sends his punishment, his discipline upon them to call them back in repentance and faith, to call them back to holiness and worshiping God alone and following his ways. And then they refuse to repent again and, and, and he calls them back. That's the, the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. It's part of the life of the church, that when we see a brother or sister in sin, we call him or her out for their sin. We give a truthful rebuke in love. And maybe, as we'll talk about in a minute, it gets to the point where the church has to give a, a punishment, a censure, in order to call to repentance. But what Paul teaches us here is that in that process, we always have a heart of reconciliation and forgiveness and repentance and peace at the end of the day. And so what we see in this text is that because, because Christ Jesus died to make us holy, Christ Jesus died to make us look like himself, in holiness, we must participate in faithful discipline in the church with the goal of repentance and reconciliation. So the first thing that I want us to see here is that discipline is necessary for our growth and holiness. And so let's think about this situation and what we can learn about the situation here. As I've said a number of times as we've been studying uh, this letter, Paul doesn't reference the details of, of, why, he, of why he didn't uh, go uh, back to see them or, or the details of why he had to make a special visit over there uh, uh, to rebuke something and why he had to send this letter of tears, this painful letter that we talk about. Um, but we see here that it seems that it's related to something we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so if you look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we read this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then in verse 6, he says, or verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Right. So back in first Corinthians chapter five, we saw that there is this grievous sin going on in the midst of the Corinthian church. And they're boasting. I don't think he means they're boasting about the fact that that's going on. They're boasting about the fact that they're a great church spiritually. We're so spiritually. We're doing so great. And Paul says, how could you be arrogant when you're turning a blind eye to this 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 flagrant sin that is taking place in the life of a man in your church? And he says, you must do something about this. He says, you must cast him out. 
for a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so I think what has happened here again, I have to say that this is a little bit of sanctified speculation, just a little bit of trying to understand what's going on. But it would seem to me, given that this comes in this place in 2 Corinthians, that what has happened is that Paul found out that they didn't deal with that issue. And that was why he made his quick trip across the sea to go and see them that we've been talking about to say, you haven't dealt with this and you have to deal with this. And while he is there, the man said, absolutely not. I will not repent. And some group of the Corinthian church went along with them, driving Paul away, having been pained by their refusal to accept his authority and to deal with this sin in the church. And then he sends his tearful letter that we've been talking about to rebuke them once again with Titus reading that letter to them. And now I believe what has happened is that as Titus has met Paul in Macedonia, he has said, they repented. They dealt with it. They called out his sin and he's repenting too. And so you can go back and be at peace with them. And he's saying in this, these verses here that they are to restore the man, which I can't imagine Paul would say without evidence of the fact that he has shown signs of repentance. Bring him back into the fold. It is enough. Right? And so, again, I, I, Paul didn't write all that history for us. Um, neither did Luke or anybody. Uh, I think it's a plausible reconstruction. What I do know for sure is that Paul is telling us this is all based on the idea that discipline is necessary in the church. Look back at verse 5 uh, in our text today, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, Paul says this, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. What's Paul saying there? I don't think Paul is saying that no one caused offense to him. We find out later that he needs to offer forgiveness. And so someone offered offense to him. But Paul says that's not the big deal here. Me being offended is not the big deal here. The big deal here is the, is, is the, the repercussions of sin in the life of the church. Right? He says, this guy, it doesn't matter if he caused pain to me. He is saying his sin has caused pain to the whole church. All right, part of the reason that we know that discipline is necessary in the church is that the sin of the one has effects on the all, the whole body. We are one body in Christ Jesus. And while we might like to be able to say when we see someone doing something wrong over here, well, that's his problem. That's her struggle. And I don't really feel like I should get involved in it. I believe what Paul says right here is the sins of the one affect the many. And so we can't not deal with sin in our midst. But we must call out sin for as I just read for us back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
It's a reference to bread dough. Uh, And you take a tiny bit of leftover dough from the day before that has the leaven in it, just a tiny small amount, and you knead it into the dough for today, and it it goes through the whole thing. It leavens the whole lump. And Paul says that little bit of sin over there in the one guy, it was flagrant, but you get the point. It's affecting the whole lump. It's affecting the whole church. Sin is like cancer. It spreads. It destroys, seeks to destroy the whole body. We are one body and we influence one another. We rub off on one another. Think about a couple of examples of that. Think about how one person using dirty language or using coarse joking can get a whole group to start doing the same thing. Think about how one person sharing a juicy tidbit of gossip can get the whole group trying to tell a bigger secret. Think about how easily we affect one another. You could go through the Ten Commandments and just think about how we rub off on each other. We influence one another's Life, right? One person in the group not taking sin seriously begins to cause everybody else to say, well, maybe I don't have to take my sin so seriously either. Sin is like weeds in your garden. If you don't deal with them, they spread, don't they? Weeds grow way better than the things we want to grow, <laughs> usually. Sin is so much easier to grow in than holiness because we are sinners. And sin spreads, and just like those weeds in the garden, if you don't deal with them, they begin to steal from the plants you want. They steal sunlight, they steal water, they steal soil and nutrients, they steal your energy as a gardener. So sin if left alone, will spread and begin to rob the whole church, will rob us of our very life. And it's not just the one, it's the many who are robbed by this. And this is why we must practice discipline in the church. This is why we must rebuke sin when we see it. And we must carry out a process to do our very best to to weed it out and to put it to death because sin is death. It is destructive. It is contagious. We must, we must put it to death. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us principles for dealing with sin in the church, which we'll look at in a moment. But sometimes we pull out those few verses about one-to-one and taking witnesses and, and taking it to the church. Sometimes we pull that out of the whole context of Matthew chapter 18, which I think uh, is it takes away some of the significance. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Keep your thumb, of course, at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But it's helpful for us to see how Jesus talks about this. Uh, and at the very beginning of chapter 18, some of his disciples have come to him and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And he calls him a child and he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I 
I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right. So there he's he's giving them an illustration and saying to be great in the kingdom of God is to be like a child, to be humble, to be dependent, to lean upon the Lord. But then listen to what he says in verse five. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And when he says these little ones, he's not talking about the literal children anymore. He's talking about his disciples that have become like little ones. And he says to cause one of them to sin, it would be better that she be drowned in the depth of the sea. Look at verse seven. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. We should not take the edge off of those words by explaining them away. Jesus says, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. And I wonder if we're willing to take sin in our lives so seriously that we would say, I can do without some of the things that feel like hands and feel like eyes because they're so important in my life. Because sin is such a big deal. It is deadly in my life. Very easy example, but I'll throw it out there. Are you willing to throw your smartphone in the trash and get one of those little Walmart deals? If your phone is too great of a temptation to sin, it feels like your right hand, doesn't it? Is it more important than holiness before God? Is it more important than living the way that Christ has called you to live? Jesus says it's not. (laughs) And we should be willing to cut off the things that are drawing us into sin. But then he goes on, and this one's really interesting because he goes on to tell the parable of the one lost sheep. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We, we tend to think evangelism when we hear that text, don't we? I think it, it's used that way elsewhere. But here Jesus is not talking about evangelism. He's talking about his little ones, the ones that are already in the fold. He's talking about believers. And he is saying when we see a brother or sister straying away from the fold, we should go after them. Because our Father in heaven rejoices more over them coming back than us elder brothers who never went. He rejoices over all of us being in the kingdom. That's not the point. 
But the point is, Jesus says, we should so care about holiness in the church. And we should so care about one another in the life of the church that we're willing to leave the comfort of the fold to go after the one who is straying. Right, and so that's where we get back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And that's where we get back to, to the need for discipline in the church, the need for calling out sin in the church. And it doesn't start with the elders, though we are involved in it as often as need be. It starts with every person in the room saying, I see a brother or sister wandering away. I don't want them to perish because my father in heaven doesn't want them to perish. I will go and I will call out that sin and I will say, I love you and this is bad for you. And you're going down a wrong path that is not pleasing to the Lord. And if you continue down that path, you will show yourself never have to have been in the kingdom and you will perish. And I don't want that for you. And so because I love you, stop it. <laughs> Come back to the fold. And I wonder how many of us are willing to do that out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and our love for our Savior who gave his very life for every one of us in this room? Or do we say, I just don't know if I'll have the right words and so I can't go? Or do we say, man, that's going to be awkward and painful and that may be the end of my friendship with that person. And can I do more good if I just keep the friendship and don't worry about this? We have so many excuses. But our Savior says, sin is death and you should do whatever you can to put it to death in your own life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sin is a big deal. Discipline is necessary. It does begin with individuals, which leads me to the next point about discipline, and that is that it must be done according to biblical principles. God has taught us how we participate in this. He has showed us what we are to do. Jesus has taught us this. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 9, so if you drop down just a little bit after he begs them to reaffirm the brother, he says, for this is why I wrote. And I believe he's talking about that, that middle letter that we don't have. The, the letter uh, he calls a letter that he wrote in tears, rebuking them for this. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Obedient to who? To Paul? To Christ? I think both. Paul, as Paul is Christ's representative and he teaches them to act according to the principles that Christ has laid out for us. Go and, 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 and deal with this sin because it is such a big deal uh, in the life of the church. And he says, I wrote this letter to see if you would be obedient. I wrote that letter to see if you would be obedient to your Savior and if you would deal with the sin. He rejoices later in the letter because they were obedient. And they did carry out the discipline that needed to take place. And it brought about repentance. But as we think about 
being obedient to Christ in this matter and what Paul was teaching uh, the Corinthians. Then we do come to what Jesus taught us again, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, where he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All right, and so Jesus tells us what we are to do when we see sin in the life of a brother or sister in Christ. We are to go one-on-one -on -one and say, you are in sin and you need to repent. And if they don't listen, then we go and grab someone else and go and say, you are in sin and you need to repent. And if they don't listen, then we take it to the church and the church comes and says, you are in sin and you need to repent. Now, there is wisdom that has to be applied, discretion that has to be applied. There, there may be situations where it wouldn't be wise for you to meet with an individual one-on-one -on -one to call out sin. We have to think about that. It might be that you need to take someone with you immediately. Uh, but the principle under it is that you're willing to go and keep it quiet and say, I see you in sin. Would you repent and let's rejoice together in the Lord because you turn away. But if necessary, you bring witnesses along. I think perhaps 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that in certain flagrant sins, you could go immediately to the church and say, this is public. This is out there. Like Paul writes that letter and says, well, you all know this is happening. Deal with it. So that there might be situations where you do it in that way, but that you bring it to the church. And of course, in our church government, the church we have representative government. You elect elders who represent you for the shepherding of the church. And so bringing it to the church is bringing it to the elders of the church. So then call the individual to repent and to turn away from their sin and turn back to the Lord. And so Paul says, will you be obedient? Will you be obedient to Christ in this? And that's the question for us as well. Christ died so that we could be holy in his likeness. And the church is his primary instrument in bringing us to that holiness. Will we be the church? Will we submit to the discipline of, of the church? Will you be present for the instruction of the church so that you can be called out from God's word without it having to be that awkward one-on-one, -on -one? but perhaps you could just be called out by a sermon or a Bible study that would cause you to repent and turn? Will you, will you come for the instruction of the church? Will you be present? Will you, will you respond to your shepherding elders when they reach out to try to help the formation of your life in good habits and good rhythms? Will you engage with us in that? Will you humbly submit to rebuke when it is necessary? And if you have put you to sleep, listen to this. Agree with yourself now and with your spouse and with your family. Agree with yourself now that discipline is good for your life. 
right, when you're not being rebuked. It's kind of like suffering. You have to understand the truths about God's sovereignty and working good in all things before you get into it so that you can turn back to it. Agree with yourself now that discipline is good for your life, that God uses his church, brothers and sisters in Christ and the elders of the church to call you to repentance and faith so that, and God forbid that this has to happen in anybody's life, but so that if you are rebuked, you will humbly accept it and submit to it as God's good purpose in your life so that you could repent and turn back to him in faithfulness. And so that's one very direct thing I would say to you from this text. Agree with yourself now that this is good and that I will submit when it comes and I will turn away so that you don't bail when it becomes difficult. Because sadly, friends, from my own experience, from talking to other pastors and elders, the vast majority of cases where rebuke comes, the sheep flee instead of listening. And that is not best. That is not best for your life. Will you be obedient and engage with your brothers and sisters in Christ when you see sin in their lives? Or will you stand off and quote unquote keep the peace rather than actually working for peace by being involved in this process? And so discipline is necessary. Discipline must be by God's principles for it. And the third thing we see here is that discipline must always have the goal of repentance and reconciliation. Again, we see this modeled by the Apostle Paul for us here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He begins again by saying, Look, this is not about me. This is about you. It's not about the offense against me. This is about holiness in the church. This is about the good of this individual and about the good of the church as a whole, right? This is about you guys and not about me. And he says, for such a one, verse six, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The heart of the Apostle Paul here is so gentle. He says, right, again, I take it as an assumption that Paul, that Titus has told him that this man has shown signs of repentance. And he says to them, look, it's not our way to hold him under the thumb until we're absolutely, 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 absolutely sure. But it is to say when we see signs of repentance, we breathe life into them. We fan those flames by receiving them back, by restoring our love, by saying, come back into the fold, brother, and grow in the grace of the Lord. Come back to the means of grace. Hear the word proclaimed. Sup at the table with us so that you can grow in this repentance that we are seeing flickers of right now. So often the church gets this wrong. We're heavy-handed, iron-fisted. And we say, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure if it's real yet. 
and we keep someone at, at arm's length instead of saying, praise God, you're turning. Come back and grow in grace together with us. Paul begs them, reaffirm your love for this brother in Christ. Bring him back into the fold. And he says in verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Right? Jesus said there back in Matthew 18, uh, that what you, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Christ has given the keys of the kingdom to the church. Paul says, you guys have, have, have seen this repentance in him. It's time to, to say that forgiveness is there. And I will go along with your decision in that. He says, indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it's almost like Paul there says, it's already gone out of my mind. I, I, it's already done for me. <laughs> I don't even remember for sure what this is about. Now, that's not exactly true, right? But that's what, that's what he's indicating there. I've put it behind me because I live in the presence of Christ. Right? I've done it for your sake in the presence of Christ. And I love this in Paul. And here's where, here's where I'll step on your toes maybe a little bit. Because Paul is not demanding any kind of apology from this guy. Paul is not saying, I'll, I'll let him back if he comes and grovels to me. I will let him back if I get the appropriate apology from him. Paul says, that's done. He rebuked him for his sin and he's turning away from his sin. And my vindication means nothing. And that's the other thing we get wrong in church discipline. We demand that, that our vindication be brought about. It's all about me and making sure that I get justice in this situation. And Paul says, actually, it's all about the other person. It's all about their repentance and turning back to the Lord in faith and about the peace and purity of the church. And I'm willing to take a hit on my own pride for the sake of this brother and for the sake of your peace. When forgiveness is offered, somebody always takes a hit, right? Somebody always absorbs the offense. It's either the offender or the accuser. And I believe what Paul teaches us here is that Christians are always willing to take the hit for the good of the brother or sister in Christ. We're always willing to absorb the offense to see repentance and peace in the church. I'm not saying that we let somebody off the hook, but I'm saying it's not about my vindication. It's not about me getting my justice in the situation. It's about repentance and holiness and the peace and purity of the church. See, interestingly, again, in Matthew 18, after Jesus gives us those principles, he tells another parable and it's the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? This one servant is forgiven of an astronomical debt, a literally inconceivable amount of money, some 200,000 years worth of wages. And he goes and he begs forgiveness of his master and his master forgives his debt and sends him away. And he goes to one who owes him like three months worth of wages, 
and he demands payment. And he throws him in prison for not paying. And the people around him say, that's not right. And they go to his master and they say, look at what he's done. And his master says, how could you do this? What is wrong with you? I forgave you an astronomical debt and you're going after this guy with a tiny little debt. And what's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is we've been forgiven so much in Christ that we should be the most forgiving people in the world. We've been forgiven an eternal debt. An eternal debt against an eternal God in Jesus Christ. And Paul says we should go into every situation longing to forgive at whatever cost it may cause us and our pride and our name and our sense of vindication. We should be the most forgiving people in the world because of what Christ has done for us. And so when we go to call out an offense, we participate in the discipline of the church. We should remember it's not about me. It's about Christ and his forgiveness to me. And this person knowing it better and repenting because of grace shown to them. And so we see that discipline is necessary. We see that we must do it according to Christ's principles and we must do it with a heart of forgiveness and desiring reconciliation and the return of our brothers and sisters in Christ into the fold. And the last thing I want to point out to us here is verse 11. Paul says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan is real. He hates you and me. He hates the church. He hates Christ. He hates holiness. He desires your destruction. And if you're not comfortable with me talking about Satan because of, you know, the language about him being bound and he's only one, he's only one uh, being he is. And that's that's all true. So just flip it and say your sinful heart hates you. And hates holiness and hates the church and hates Jesus and wants you to run away from holiness and to be more and more comfortable with sin. And the world around you in that John, uh, Gospel of John sense of the world, the fallen world around you hates your holiness and hates the church growing together in maturity and wants you to be more and more comfortable with your sin and less and less. <laughs> what a lie. Wants you, to be, wants you to think you can't grow in holiness. And that's just not a real thing because of God's grace. Of course, Scripture says the exact opposite. God's grace would have us to grow in holiness. And Paul says here, this is why we must faithfully practice discipline in the church because we have very real enemies and they are wily and they are after us and they will try to take us down one at a time and then a group at a time. He says we must fight sin because the enemy is real and the enemy is smart and the enemy will come after you. And he also says we must practice extravagant forgiveness with one another for the very same reason. 
Because when we make a brother or sister feel like forgiveness is not an option, restoration is not an option, Satan wins that one too. Because that leads to despair and not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it's real. And so we have to have both, right? We must, we must call out sin where we see it and we must call it out with the open arms of the gospel that say Christ has died to cover your sin. All right, lean upon him and come into my arms for a hug and let's, let's fight together for holiness against the evil one. Let me pray and ask the Lord to make us such a church.